Good morning. It's such a great encouragement for us to see all of you here each week desiring to learn of Jesus and growing in Him. We know, don't we, that God is worth knowing, and it's our lifelong pursuit. He is the one who will reward with riches as we pursue Him. We all benefit from being together each week, too. We are mutually encouraged. I am thankful to be here this morning. Let's pray before we begin. Lord, you are so good. You are a great Savior. I pray, Lord, that you would produce faith in us to live by you, to make us desire you and you alone, that you would be our hope and our glory as we live each day. Lord, you have provided for us to have a new heart. You are a gracious, kind, loving Father, and we adore you. And we look to your word this morning to know more about our hearts, to see what you have said, the character of it, the wills of it. And Lord, we desire to submit ourselves fully to you. I pray, Lord, that you would direct our minds this morning, that our hearts would desire you more and more as we study you and your character. Again, Lord, thank you for bringing us together this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, each week we look at our notebooks to remind one another of our Wellspring purpose. We keep this focus in front of us so that we can know how we're doing each week, to know whether we've stayed true to our purpose, the aim of our time together. So the purpose of the Wellspring is to encourage the women of Grace Bible to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live out gospel transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. This is the aim, it's the goal, it's the focus for us. And now we look at the tools which we use to accomplish this purpose. The tools for pursuing that purpose are the three disciplines. And our first discipline, as you see in your notebook, is the heart. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. We've been studying Psalm 119 in our homework. It has been a rich study, and we will continue to do that. In Psalm 119, we hear the heart of a man who loves God and who loves God's word and who is earnest for obedience. Psalm 119.10 says, With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. What he's saying is, God, I have sought you with all of my heart. In my innermost being, with all that I am, I have sought you. I've pursued you. I've searched for you. What does this pursuit produce? Well, he cries out, don't let me wander from your commandments. Don't let me forget them. Don't let me stroll away into a life of disregarding them and disobeying them. In seeking God wholeheartedly, he sees the danger of wandering from God's word. He sees the value of God's word and the necessity of his own heart to be near it. It is our good to be near God. So as we see, um, as we have been... So we, so I'm sorry, and so we, as those who have been born again, we can now be women who seek God with all of our hearts. We too must guard our hearts from wandering from the word. The words from the song, O come thou fount of every blessing, is a wonderful prayer to the Lord. O grace, how great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be. Let thy grace, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Do you sense this in your own heart? I so very often do. Let your grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. We cultivate a love for our God by the daily discipline of meeting with him in his word, of seeking him there, 
to know him, to worship him, to humble ourselves before him, to be laid bare before him. We cannot love him if we don't know him, and we know him by being in the word each day. God's grace in the gospel has made this a reality for us. We're no longer slaves to that aimless wandering that will never bring us near to God and his word. We move into discipline too, the home. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. If we're feeding and nourishing our hearts, realigning that wayward heart within us with his truth, especially the gospel, learning of God's character and growing in our affection for him, we have much to offer to those in our home. The words of wisdom will be on our tongue. As we soak ourselves in the gospel, we will be ready to encourage others in this good news, applying it to every situation that comes our way. But if I'm not intentional about ministering to those in my home this way, with my heart for God and the gospel, then where I can easily wander, I simply don't stop to take time to minister to my family, laying down my own agenda, my own interest for the interests of others in my home. This caring for my household family relationships doesn't just happen. I must draw them out with questions and conversation. It's deliberate. In Psalm 14.1, it says, The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with their own hands. To be thoughtful and prayerful about how we live in our homes and our closest relationships where lives rub up against one another, where there are often so many needs and so many opportunities to deny ourselves and to extend grace and to serve. Ministry and service in our homes, done with a heart for God and the gospel, are opportunities to display what the gospel has done in us. And there are so many opportunities in our home. Discipline, too, reminds us that the first place that power needs to be displayed is in our closest relationships. We can praise God for his mercy toward us and giving us these new abilities to become like Jesus. Well, this brings us to discipline three, ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel, fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. We've said it before, these disciplines are not sequential. You don't finish discipline one and then move on to discipline two. And when you're done with that, move into discipline three. I'll tell you that as you are faithfully caring for your own heart and those in your home, God will bring many opportunities to encourage women around you. And we must caution one another, right, to not leapfrog over our own hearts or those in our home. Too often we want to serve those in the church and we want to meet and disciple others. But our homes are not in order in the sense that we're not faithfully shepherding our own hearts and ministering to the needs of those in our home. So as we live out the one another's in scripture, the whole church is strengthened. And that means together we better display the fullness of Christ. Well, last week we looked at what the gospel does for our hearts, for our inner man. And we saw that the gospel makes us into new creations, right? And we look forward to our glorification as believers when we will be in an unmixed condition, a sinless condition, and we will be at home with the Lord. But God in his wisdom and goodness and sovereignty has made a way for us to be born again into new creations, and he's left us in a mixed condition. He certainly could have changed us from the unregenerate man, directly taking us into glorification, or taken us from the unregenerate man and made us spotless and perfect here. But he's chosen to glorify himself through our mixed condition. Do you see that we're in the process of progressive sanctification? We are dependent upon him. We learn of him. We grow in our affections for him. And others are drawn to him through the gospel being displayed in us. 
He is a wise God beyond our comprehension. We see that leaving us in this mixed condition, God's glory is greatly seen. His power is displayed through us. We talked about the hope we have because of all the conversion events and the gospel realities. We talked about new abilities and desires. And we talked about ongoing weakness of the new creation. That all the, although the old is gone, nonetheless, we still carry a residue of weakness and sin. And this is the mixed condition we talk about. But now we're in a position of great hope, right? Because we can now fight against that sin that mastered us before. A slave doesn't battle her master, she serves her master. And so the fact that as new creations we can now participate in the process of sanctification and that we are growing in our desire and our ability to battle sin by God's grace is evidence that we have a new master, a good master, God himself. It is then in this, our pursuit to know our master, discipline one. We humbly submit to and obey our master because he's been so gracious to redeem us, to save him for himself. And so today we move into a biblical survey of the heart. We do this because God's word has a lot to say about the heart. By understanding God's concern for the heart, we position ourselves to benefit from God's word as we, as he designed. I want to start with a story that Scott has used in Build. A four-day-old baby born with his heart outside of his chest is battling for life in a Delhi hospital after an incredible dash through India to save him. Vibhai Devai, born in a remote rural village in India, was rushed by 24-hour, 800 miles to the capital by his desperate father. Suffering from a condition known as ectopia cordis, which causes the heart to be abnormally placed during development, in this case outside the body, most babies die within hours of being born. The biggest challenge for this baby was his own heart. His only hope was that the doctor would get this baby's own heart back inside him. Spiritually speaking, what's similar in our hearts? Our biggest challenge is our own hearts. The baby's biggest challenge wasn't his parents or his home life or his environment or the fact that he will live in poverty. It's his own heart. And it's the same for us. Our biggest challenge it's not our parents or our upbringing, wealth or status, but our own hearts before the Lord, our spiritual heart before God. The major differences with us and this baby is that the baby's physical heart is on the outside causing problems. God says my spiritual heart is on the inside causing problems. The baby's only hope is to get his own heart inside his body, but he can't do it himself. He is dependent on the doctor. Our only hope is to get the heart that's inside of us out we are born in need of a new heart, and we cannot help ourselves. We are dependent on Christ to do this in us. God provided a new heart at the cross of Jesus Christ. Everyone in the baby's life was focused on his heart. He wasn't concerned about his height or weight or eye color. And we need to be entering into a lifestyle, if we're not already there, where we're constantly concerned with the heart, primarily our own. Not so that we become myoptic and are focused on ourselves, but because we must understand the true condition of our heart in order to appreciate and be thankful for what Christ did at the cross for our sinful hearts. So let's begin our survey today, taking a look at what God wants us to know about the heart, and what the heart is, its qualities, what it understands, its call, its need, and we're going to look at all of that so that we're spurred on to embrace and to pursue and rely upon that which God has provided for our hearts. 
So let's take out our art outlines, the heart, a whole biblical survey of the heart. You're going to see bold categories on your outline. Within each category, we'll start in the Old Testament and walk through the Word into the New Testament. The reason we do this is because God gradually unfolded His revelation to us. God revealed to Moses exactly what He wanted His people Israel to have, what they needed to have a saving relationship with Him. But as we know, He built on that, and He continued to reveal Himself through time. So we want to walk through those subjects the same way that God has set up His Word. So today we're looking at a broad picture of what God tells us about the heart. We look at lots of verses. We want to let those verses speak for themselves. We want to feel the impact, verse after verse, hearing what God has told us in the Word regarding the heart, my heart, your heart. It's good for us to feel the weight of the wickedness of the heart and know this was our heart before God rescued us and gave us a new heart. It also serves as a reminder to us of the evil that still remains, the residue of sin in our hearts. So that leads us to question one. What is the heart? When we talk about the heart, what do we mean? Well, the heart is the inner man, the inner person. It's you. It sums up who you are, inwardly speaking. We have the outer man, which is the physical part of us, and we have the inner man, the heart. The heart is the place in which God reveals himself to us, first and foremost. The heart is the part of us that is addressed by God. It's where we're evaluated by God. The heart is the seed of doubt and hardness, as well as faith and obedience. The heart is the center of our emotions, our will, and our thoughts. It's the center of who we are. So every word, thought, desire, will, emotion, deed, comes out of the heart. And that's our wellspring theme verse, Proverbs 4.23. Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Biblically, there's a lot of overlap between the heart and the mind, and we'll see this in the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. Jesus is not dividing us into four parts and saying love God with each piece. Rather, there's an overlap, and they're all describing who we are from the inside out. So he uses heart, soul, strength, and mind to underscore that we're to love him completely, all out, with the very essence of who we are, and that overflowing into all we do. God does his work first on the inner man, and that affects the whole man. Oftentimes, we may be tempted to work on the outer man, relying on our own strength. This is simply moralism, looking good on the outside, but having no lasting effects because the heart has not been changed. Man is naturally content with the outward part of religion, outward morality, outward correctness, but the eyes of the Lord look much further. He regards our motives. He weighs the spirit. He says himself, I, the Lord, am the searcher of the heart, the tester of the thoughts. So when we say heart, we're talking about you. Not just a part of you, but who you are at the core, who you are in your totality. So therefore, the heart is the vocal point of God's evaluation of us. Moving into question two, what does scripture say about the human heart? At this point, we're speaking generally of the condition of the heart apart from new life in Christ. And you'll see that represented on the far left column of our pamphlets. So this is true until we get later on in our study, and I'll let you know when we get there. But you'll see in some of these verses that in this mixed condition we find ourselves, there's still a residue of what the old man was. The overall thrust here is to show us our need for Christ and an ongoing need for the gospel and his word. Turn to Genesis 6-5. 
The word gives us the description of the human heart by way of explanation of what comes next. God gives us the account of Noah's ark and God's plan to destroy the earth with a flood. Verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God is saying that every intent of the thoughts of his heart, any intention, any planned purpose in his heart, nothing that didn't have wickedness and evil saturating. Do you see every, only, continually, all in the same sentence? Man's great wickedness is primarily a heart problem. So the flood comes in chapter 6 and 7 and subsides in chapter 8. And so they finally come off the boat. Genesis 8, 20-21 read, Then Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He worshipped and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Here we are, during the moment of worship, God is stating again what is still true of the human race, a repeat of what he said in chapter 6, that every intention of the heart of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now there are only eight people on the face of the earth and he's saying, as you worship me, as you come off the boat, there's still a problem. Man's heart is still evil. The point is, the judgment of the flood did not fix man's heart problem. But God had a plan and we will see that again today. Looking at Proverbs 20 verse nine, who can say I have cleansed my heart? I am pure from my sin. Well, the obvious answer, is no one according to God. The stain of man's heart is so great we don't possess what it takes to cleanse it, to purify it. And so we've seen that the heart is evil and that it's beyond our ability to cleanse it. Let's go into Matthew 15, verse 1 through 20. And I'm not going to read all of that, but just give you a little background. The Pharisees and scribes are very concerned about hand washing, which is an outer man concern. Jesus responds and says, Here's the problem. You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. They're not concerned about their heart. In verse 15, Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. Verse 16, Jesus says, Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Jesus is telling us that there's a source of defilement, of corruption, inside us. The heart is the source that defiles us, that makes us impure. Let's go to Romans 1, 20, and 21. Again, we're moving through the Bible, looking for what God has said about the condition of the of the human heart. Verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So from the beginning, God has made it clear he's there. In verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. What's the proof of man's foolishness? It's this, that even though man knew something of God, they had no intent to honor him as God at a heart level. And that is foolish. 
and a foolish heart plunges a person into spiritual darkness. So here's what we've seen so far in just five passages. Man's heart is evil. The heart is beyond our ability to cleanse. The source of defilement within a person is his own heart. And the foolish heart invites even greater spiritual darkness. This is what God says about the heart. Well, question three, is the heart alert to this devastating condition? And we're going to see that the answer is no, because it's deceived. Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 16. And here's just an encouragement for you in the discipline of reading through your Bible in a year. Maybe Deuteronomy is not a book you've read for a while. It's so easy to camp in our favorite books, maybe those five or six that are our go-to books. And there's value in that, of course. But if we set our hearts to take in the whole Bible, we'll get a much better understanding, a deeper understanding of God and his character. We read the word to know God, to love him and to obey and glorify him. Deuteronomy mentions the heart 45 times. If you and I don't read the whole Bible, we've missed 45 windows into the heart. And we don't want to miss any parts. So looking at verse 13, It shall come about, if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I'm commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul, that he will give the rain in season, that you may gather in your grain and new wine and oil. He will give grass to your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. Under the Mosaic Covenant, there were blessings for honoring the Lord from the heart, from the inner man. There was a relationship between obedience and physical blessings and provision. But listen to what comes next in verse 16. Beware that your hearts are not deceived, and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Why would Moses say beware after speaking of abundance and blessing? Because the heart is easily deceived even when surrounded by blessing. And that's why we, too, need to be cautious. In our mixed condition, we can so easily be deceived. I need to be cautious of me, inwardly speaking, when everything is the way I like it. Because the heart is easily deceived even when it's at its best, following God and obeying Him. Well, Jeremiah 17.9 is a familiar verse. Listen to what Jeremiah tells us about the heart. And he uses some pretty strong language. The heart is more deceitful than all else. Not just deceitful or more deceitful than all else. And is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? So Jeremiah is encouraging us to make a list of whatever you find that's deceitful in the world. And that would be a very long list, wouldn't it? And nothing can beat the heart out of the number one spot. It's that sick. It's so sick. It's beyond our grasp. We can't even understand its condition. It's worse than we think. We saw in Deuteronomy that the heart is easily deceived when it's at its best, and now we see in Jeremiah that the heart itself is the most exceptional deceiver. The next passage we're going to look at is Romans 16, 17-18. We're moving into the New Testament here to answer the question, is the heart alert to its devastating condition? Well, here in Romans 16, Paul is finishing out his instruction in his letter to the Romans by saying, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Why? Verse 18, For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. If we are unsuspecting people in the church, and they are troublemakers, 
that we are naive to, our hearts can be easily deceived by them. We can be deceived by troublemakers in the church. James 1.26, to finish out this section, there is one more aspect. If anyone thinks he's religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. If I think I'm religious but I don't have control over my own words, what comes out of my mouth, it's evidence I have been deceived in my own heart. I am self-deceived. So is the heart alert to its devastating condition? No, not apart from Jesus Christ. How can it be alert to its own devastation when it's surrounded by and vulnerable to and filled with deception? And we've seen the warnings to believers as well. There's an ongoing residue of deceivability, even in the new creation. Question four, what's the highest call of the human heart? Go to Matthew 22 in the New Testament. It's a repeat of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, in verse 4, The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Jesus takes that summary command of what the law was all about and he repeats it for his disciples in Matthew 22, 36-38. Verse 36, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? What's the highest thing a good Jew like me should be about? And Jesus answers, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. This is the highest calling of the human heart, to love God. So let's see if we understand this correctly. The heart that's evil, beyond our cleansing, the source of defilement, that foolishly invites spiritual darkness, the heart that's easily deceived even when it's at its best, and is also an excellent deceiver itself, that can be deceived by others and by me, and that's the most important central part of me before God, the place God examines, that heart is supposed to love God and love Him not just with a part of it, but with all of it. You might be thinking, are you kidding me? God, do you know what you're asking? My heart is so filthy, and what you've called me to is so high. That leads us into question five. Does God see this whole predicament? Listen to key verses from some of the passages you have listed in your notes. Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 12. I'm sorry, 1 through 2. Verse 2, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And 1 Kings 8, 38 and 39, Solomon has finished building the temple. He's praying for the people of Israel, appealing for God to hear their prayers. In verse 39, he says, Forgive and act and render to each according to his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. God definitely sees the heart, every heart. He's the only one who knows every heart. So yes, God sees this predicament. He sees the discrepancy between the heart's condition and his command for us to love him with all of our heart. So go to Proverbs 24, 10-12. God is the only one who sees it rightly. If you say, see, we didn't know this, that's deception. You did know. Does he not consider it who weighs the heart? Doesn't God weigh the heart? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? Not only is God weighing the heart, not only is he testing the man, but he's weighing each one so as to repay, to render to each one according to what he has done. 
So yes, he sees, and he sees the purpose of repaying. Jeremiah 10, we read verse 9 earlier. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the man, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. God not only knows the heart and knows mankind's predicament, but he searches each heart for the purpose of repayment. Let's go to the New Testament in Mark 2, 6-8. I want to show you how Jesus displayed his deity with the same kind of knowledge of the heart. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. They're not saying this anything out loud. So in their minds, they're thinking, verse 7, Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? In verse 8, immediately Jesus, aware of his spirit, in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? The scribes were just thinking these words. And yet Jesus knows their hearts and their thoughts. And he responded to them, as if they had spoken their thoughts out loud. Jesus knows the hearts, and he responds to them on the basis of what is in their hearts. 1 Corinthians 4, 1-5, let's see what Paul says. Paul had trouble with the Corinthians, it seems perpetually so, and a lot of the problem was how they regarded him. We read in the beginning of verse 3, But to me it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you, or by any court, human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness, and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Paul is saying, I understand scripture's analysis of the heart. The heart deceives. So even though I don't see anything wrong with my heart, it doesn't mean I'm clean before God, because I can't see my own heart accurately. But the Lord will come and disclose the motives of men's heart. And we want this. We need this. This is the reason, one of the reasons we're so diligent about Discipline 1. So does God see this predicament? Yes, he does. In fact, he's the only one who sees it as it truly is. And he searches the heart for the purpose of repayment. And for the one who does not know Jesus, that is a frightening proposition. Moving into question six, what's the greatest need of the human heart? Back to Deuteronomy 10. We're going to approach this from two perspectives. First, we're going to ask, what is the need? And then, who is responsible for meeting this greatest need of the human heart? We're going back to the beginning of our Bibles as we answer this question, doing our survey of the heart. So, verses 12 through 16, Moses is talking to Israel. Now, Israel, what does the Lord our God require from you but to fear the Lord your God? to walk in his ways and love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens and the earth and all that's in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as it is this day. Moses reminds the people of this beautiful relationship that the Creator God of the universe has given them with Himself. He has set His affections on them and requires to them to love Him, to walk with Him, serve Him with all their heart. And then in verse 16, he kind of drops a bombshell. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Their hearts need circumcision, and they are commanded to do it for themselves. 
It's their responsibility to cut away all that's evil, all that's keeping them from loving God rightly. Now we're going to look at Jeremiah 4, verses 4 and 14. This is nearly a thousand years later in the history of Israel, and God is still saying the same thing. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. It's a command. He's telling them to do it. Or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. He's saying there needs to be radical removal like circumcision of all that's wrong in your heart or judgment will come. This is a serious need. In verse 14, wash your heart from evil, O Jerusalem. Why? That you may be saved. How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? How long will you keep doing this? It's been a thousand years. Here he's commanding the very thing we saw in Proverbs 20, verse 9, that we can't do. Wash our hearts. And yet he's saying, you do something about your heart. You wash it. God has identified the heart's greatest need. It needs a radical removal of all that's wrong. It needs to be cleansed. But he's placing that responsibility squarely on the shoulders of his people. Why does God do this? Are you feeling the tension? As we continue to walk through the Bible, that tension just builds. In Ezekiel 18, 30-32, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions, which you have committed to make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Here it is again. Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. See, if you're a Jew and you're hearing this, you're thinking, God, you want me to make the most important part of who I am before you, who I am at the very core, the part of me that bears all thoughts, emotions, desires, and words, the part of me that you never overlook, you want me to do this? See, a Jew hearing this has to ask this question. The answer is yes. The command is do this. That would be very uncomfortable to hear. And that was intentional. They needed to be uncomfortable with this command. Why? Because God was pointing to their need for a Savior, one who could purify their hearts. We're going to turn to Joel 2, 12-13. Over and over again, God makes it clear that he holds his people responsible to do something about the need of their heart. Verse 12, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your hearts, and not your garments. That was the custom when something awful would happen, they would tear their clothes. It was a sign of deep sadness and grief, and God is saying, do that to your heart. He's saying to return to me with deep sadness for what you've made of yourself. Tear your heart at the very heart level of who you are. Show deep grief and sadness and brokenness. We're going to turn to James 4, 8, and we see the same idea in the New Testament. Just so we understand that this is a New Testament command at a certain level for the Christian, we'll see that even in the New Covenant, the commandment is the same. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So we've seen the greatest need of the heart is to be cleansed, purified having all that is wrong with it cut away like circumcision, to be torn in grief, to be made new, and man is commanded to do it. It is our responsibility. Turn to Deuteronomy 30. Having seen that the greatest need of the heart is to be cleansed and that man is responsible for that and man is incapable in himself, 
Now we go back to look at question six from another perspective. What God promises to do for man that man cannot do for his own heart. Here's where we find the gospel of grace running throughout all of scripture. This is what we've been waiting for. Here is our hope. He is our only hope. So Deuteronomy 30 verses 1 through 10 and especially we're going to look at verses 1 and 6. So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that he command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you. And he goes on with many wonderful promises of restoration. Now jump down to verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. The old covenant anticipated a new heart was desperately needed and that God would provide it. From its earliest days, from the giving of the law, when God was setting up covenant through Moses, they were to long for a heart that was able to do what God said. The Old Covenant actually highlighted the need for a new heart, though, without doing anything to provide for it. We're going to look at Psalm 51.10. David lived under the Old Covenant. He felt this tension, and this is after his sin with Bathsheba. He knew God's evaluation of the heart, and he knew God's promise of a new heart, and he cries out for God to do that. In verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do you not hear the tension, the deep tension he felt? He knew it was beyond him, so he's crying out to the Redeemer, the Creator, to do in his heart what must happen, yet what he was incapable of. He's crying out for help at the heart level. And we're going to go back to Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Backtracking through a lot of the same books, seeing that God is so gracious in the very places where he is making the need of the heart known, he's laying responsibility to meet squarely on the needs of the people. He's right there giving them hope, promising that that he will provide for their most desperate heart need. This passage promises a new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is the promise of the new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, which they have not experienced yet today as a nation. They have a glorious day to look ahead when it will be fulfilled, a covenant in which the focus will be at a heart level to do with the heart what the old covenant could not do. We're going to skip to Ezekiel 11, verses 19 through 21. And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them, and I will take the heart of stone out of them and give a heart of flesh. See, a heart of flesh here means a soft heart. It's contrasted with a heart of stone that is fleshly and sinful and stubborn and teachable unteachable, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. This is a corporate expression of what God is going to do for them collectively. He will give a new heart to his people. Again in Ezekiel 36, God promises a new heart and a new spirit. 
I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to obey my ordinances. God is so kind. He's so gracious. Jeremiah and Ezekiel were both written at a time when they were God was judging his people and sending them into exile. And yet over and over again, he speaks these words of hope to them. When God gives his people a new heart, his spirit within them will cause them to walk in his statutes. Our God is so kind and so loving. Turn to Luke 22. So we're going to go to the beginning of when that promise was being fulfilled. Here we find Jesus the night before his crucifixion. He's eating the Passover with his disciples. And he said to them in verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. You see, the cross was on his mind. It's where Jesus was focused. For I will say, I will never again eat this until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. He's making it clear his eminence, his death is eminent. In verse 19, And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup will be poured out for you in the, is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is taking the Passover supper, transforming it into what has become for us a remembrance of his death. He is inaugurating the new covenant that he would die to bring about. So let's turn to Acts 2. This is after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. The blood of the new covenant has been shed. The Holy Spirit had come on disciples, speaking in tongues, speaking great things of God. And the people were all speaking these great things about God in their own language. They want an explanation, so Peter gets up and gives the first sermon. And here's the conclusion in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's Lord, he's Messiah, and those listening to Peter were the ones who crucified him. Now when they had heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Peter says, Repent and be baptized. The promise is for you and your children and all that God will call. The new covenant in Jesus' blood has been inaugurated, and the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all those who are present. And what happens at the heart level in those who hear Peter? They're pierced to the heart. They experience conviction at the level of their heart, their inner self. So the heart is changed by the preaching of the gospel. The work that God promised is now starting. And we're going to go to Acts 15:6. This is the Council of Jerusalem. The Gentiles are believing, and this is a shock to the Jews, because what did they think? That God was primarily working with Israel. It's what God said when he talked about the new covenant. I will make a new covenant with the house of Judah and Israel. But watch what happens. The elders and the apostles come together to look into this matter. And there has been much debate. Peter stood up and said, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that my, by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. 
God is allowing Gentiles to participate in promises of the New Covenant as well as Jews. So we saw the greatest need of heart is to be made new, to be cleansed, and that we are viewed by God as responsible. Why does God command sinners to do something with their heart that they cannot do? Because it puts the accent and the emphasis on our responsibility. We are responsible for what we have become, and we are responsible to do something about it. But this does not hinder God's process of doing for the sinner what he can, only he can do for the sinner. Because it makes the one who he is working in with his spirit say, I can't. Will you please do it for me? It makes us cry out to God. It makes us look away from ourselves when we realize that our eyes have been opened by God to see how devastated our heart is and how deceived we are in the inner man. Now when our eyes are open to see that and God says, you are accountable, we cry out, God, save me. I'm done with myself at this point. Done with playing religion. Done playing church. Done with me. And we cry out for God's grace in the gospel to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Change me at the heart level. I need a new heart. This is the gospel. This is why Jesus shed his blood. To pay for all that you are responsible for. For all that I'm responsible for that we cannot pay ourselves. But he suffered in our place so that we, by his grace, could be made new at the inner man level, at the heart level. That is good news. What a great God we serve. In his word, he paints for us a very, very dark picture of who we were. And then he brings the light. And we need to walk ourselves through this over and over again. And we need to take each other back on this journey. And remember where we were in our darkness. And then stop and step into the light of the gospel. And marvel again and again. Every day. All the time. Look who God has made me. Look where he has brought me. My great God and my great Savior. Look what he has done for me at an inner man level. He has transformed my heart. He has done this work in me. We look at number seven. And this is our purpose at Wellspring. This is what we are about. It's our last pass through the Bible. Go to Deuteronomy 6. Question seven. What is God's provision for hearts that need to change or have been changed? Let's see what God says. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. So they would have been thrust up against this. How am I supposed to love God like this? Verse 6 These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. This is God's provision for our heart that has been changed in the gospel. His word that we would have his word pushed up against our inner man. And turn to Ezra 7.10. I love this. Ezra understood this. He was a scribe long after Israel was sent into captivity, and God was letting them return now to the land he had given them. Ezra understood that the heart and God's word were to be in full contact with one another. Verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice it, 
and to teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. Here's the Old Testament version of shepherding your heart. Ezra set his heart to study, to practice, and to teach God's word. Ezra knew his heart needed to be in contact with God's word. And so we need to ask ourselves, do we? Do we understand how badly our hearts need God's word? Looking back to Psalm 119, verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With my heart I have sought you. This is the key. This is what it's all about. Our hearts need God. It's always been that way. It was this way for the old covenant believers. The heart needs God. Notice what he says next. It's not just any kind of spiritual experience. He says, don't let me wander from your commandments. Why? Because my heart needs you. And you are revealed to me in the commandments. Verse 11, your word I have treasured. Where? In my heart. Why? That I may not sin against you. The psalmist understood that the only way not to sin against the Lord who loves him is to treasure God's word in his heart. He esteems the word. It's his treasure. It's what he values. And he treasures it in his heart. There's nothing more precious to him. The psalmist is not describing a casual or occasional interaction, is he? You can see you have some verses from Proverbs listed. We're not going to go there. But these are pleas of a father exhorting his children to bring his words into full contact with their hearts. It's not just our hearts that need to be fully engaged with God's word. It's what our children's hearts need. And for everyone whose heart we have the opportunity to care for. Again, we read in Jeremiah 31:33, and God says that he's going to put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it. So God commands, get this word near your heart. And then he says, he is going to do the work in us. The new covenant brings the heart and God's word into new relationship, like unlike anything before. Luke 8:11, Jesus tells the parable about the farmer sowing seed on different soil. And then in verse 11, gives the meaning of the parable. Now the parable is this, the seed of the is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word. What? From their heart. So they will not believe and be saved. The enemy knows what God's provision is for the inner man, and he does not want God's word coming anywhere near a person's heart. In three of these soils, the word gets snatched away. It sprouts but dies, and it gets choked out. But in verse 15, we see the only good soil. These are the ones who have heard the word with an honest and good heart. And we know how we get that good heart, right? And they hold fast, and they bear fruit. Jesus' intent is that God's word needs to be in full contact with my heart. The answer for our heart is Jesus' suffering. And where else do we see that but in the gospel? Jesus is the one who takes away sin and makes us new in the inner man. Well, let's look at Hebrews 4, 12-13 and see why. Why is God's word the provision for our hearts? For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of heart and spirit, soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is God's design for his word with us. It would come near to our hearts and that we would allow him to use it as a surgical tool, 
allow it to reveal the thoughts and intentions going on in our hearts. God's word is his provision for our hearts. What does our inner man need more than anything else, even in this new condition, this mixed condition we're in? As women who have been born again in our new mixed condition, we can still be deceived. But what is different is that this new inner man has been given a capacity by God, for God, to know him, to love him, to pursue him, to obey him. But he tells us that we still have to watch over our heart. And we won't be done with that until we die or Jesus comes back. So if we understand who we are in Christ, what he's made us into, if we understand the nature of our heart, then we will recognize that we need the word of God more than we need anything else in this world. We will treasure it. We need to bring our hearts into full contact with God's word all the time. And we need to do it prayerfully, worshipfully, in a way that's dependent on him to reveal himself to us through his word. We need to open the word and pray to God. God, please meet with me here. Reveal yourself to me. Show me who you are in these words. Feed my heart as your new creation. Give me eyes to see where the residue of the old man is still hanging around. Help me to honor and glorify your name. If we come to the word with that attitude, Our affections will certainly grow for God. What a wonderful Savior we have in providing for our greatest need. He has given us new hearts to love Him. What a great God we serve. Let's pray. Father, only you could have invented and devised this great plan of redemption for those whom you love. God, only you know as you search the hearts of every man, you know what's there. And only you can change a leper's spots, who can change a heart of stone, give a heart of flesh. Only you, God, can give us new hearts. Lord, thank you that you have called us to be women who love you and who can follow after you. Lord, I pray that our desire to bring our hearts before your word would grow in us and that our affections and love would grow for you as we know you more deeply. God, thank you for all that you have given us in the gospel. Thank you for your suffering, your willingness to die in our place, to pay our penalty, that you would die for the wicked and the evil men because of your great love for us. Thank you, Father, for the gospel. Thank you for loving us, and thank you for giving us your word that we might know you and love you more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.